Well, on Sundays, where I'm healthy and not recovering from surgery, which haven't been very many this year, if you've been keeping tallies, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. Anybody remember that study? We lost it somewhere back in the, earlier in this year. Well, in our study, we've seen Solomon run various tests searching for joy, searching for satisfaction. In chapter 1, Solomon is frustrated in spite of all of his wisdom, all of his wealth and power. He is incapable of reversing the futility and the brevity of life. He just cannot reverse it. In chapter 2, Solomon thought more would make him happy, right? More pleasure, more wisdom, more work. But this, too, was meaningless, because death is the ultimate thief of the quest for more. In the first part of chapter 3, Solomon reflects on our time spent here on earth, the good, the bad, the joys, and the sorrows. But frustration and disappointment set in when he realizes his own human limitations, And so this morning, Solomon will touch on a very relevant and even a hot-button subject in our culture. Popular thoughts and opinions are strong and often divisive, requiring us as Christians to be solidly biblical in our understanding and gracious and patient with one another as we work together to understand God's word and understand each other. As we open the scriptures, I pray that God would enable us to develop a more biblical, God-centered theology of justice and injustice. Because for Solomon, the prevalence of injustice and evil instead of justice and righteousness is part of what he looks around and says that life is meaningless. So the title of our study has been Life is Meaningless Without Christ. So life is meaningless without Christ. Will you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3? We're going to begin looking at verse 16. Ecclesiastes 3 16. Solomon writes, Moreover, I saw under heaven, I'm sorry, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? 
So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who was not yet born, had been born, to not see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the problem of injustice is the corruption of sin. The problem of injustice is the corruption of sin. We, we see that in verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that the place of justice, even there, was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, was wickedness. As Solomon looks around his world, in, in places where justice and righteousness should be, he sees injustice. He sees unrighteousness. And not only in our passage this morning, but as we would expand out and look more and more into the book of Ecclesiastes, we will see wickedness as a widespread issue causing corruption and injustice. So letter A, corrupt courts, a court that is corrupted. I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue twisted here court is corrupted. In verse 16 here, Solomon refers to the place of justice. Now this is likely referring to the court of elders that would decide matters between individuals. And so Solomon's words are almost shocking, right? This is the one place where you would go to get a just judgment on what is happening, and he's saying it can't be found. And certainly not in its fullest sense, it, it cannot be found. Letter B, people and authority and power are corrupted. And isn't that what we read in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? Where he talks about the oppression, the oppressive, the, ah, the <laughs> I am all twisted up here. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. No one. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You see here, Solomon observes the ongoing oppression of the poor and they have no protection. They are oppressed. They're, they're powerless. There's no one to comfort them. And worse, Solomon really depicts just how hopeless they feel. I mean, if you read verses 2 and 3, it describes the dead are better off, or, yet, or even still, those that are not yet born are better off. There's a hopelessness that people were experiencing that were poor and powerless. Letter C, 
government is corrupted. If you look to chapter 5, verse 8 in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For a high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Now these officials are watching not necessarily to protect or to provide a system of checks and balances, but they're not protecting the poor, but instead they're, they're, they're oppressing and finding creative ways to squeeze revenue out of officials that are below them all the way trickling down to the laborers themselves. And so while many believe that Solomon is writing a, a hypothetical situation, not necessarily throwing his own officials under the bus, but this very same scenario sadly is what is played out when Solomon's son begins to rule and, and, le and it leads to the kingdom being divided. If you remember, Solomon's son only wanted to accept advice from young men that said, raise the taxes and get more money. While the older, wiser folks says, no, we need to take care of the people. That would be unwise. And so the officials... He began to follow the, the wisdom of the younger men. Letter D, religion is corrupted. Look to Ecclesiastes 8, verses 10 through 11. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. And notice how he describes the, the life of the wicked. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is folly set to do evil. So Solomon observes that even in the place of worship, the wicked are present and receive praise. And so this allows oppression to continue unchecked and unpunished. And so it leads me to ask, why? Why is there corruption at every level of society? The very simple answer is because fallen humans are at every level of society. We read in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, this condition was not limited to those living before the flood. What started with Adam and Eve has persisted to us today. Now, when you spend time with children at play, it doesn't take long to hear those all-familiar words, that's not fair. Now, I, and to that child's lament, you bring sage wisdom, don't you? 
You bring sage wisdom that has guided you all your days and passed down to you at a young age from an older, wiser person in your life, and you will say to that child those deflating words. What are those words? Life isn't fair. Get over it, right? If we deny or ignore the fallen condition of mankind being corrupt in every part of our being, then justice and injustice must be redefined And the answer to that redefinition will take us outside of the Word of God into the realm of man's wisdom and opinion. Uh, Let me say it in a different way. If we locate the man problem with mankind outside of himself, outside of his wicked heart, we will define we will redefine justice and injustice in a way that is not consistent with the Word of God. As Solomon looks at his world, and as you and I look at ours, the problem of injustice is the corruption of sin. Number two, the solution to injustice is Jesus, and only Jesus can remove sin. You see, if our problem is corruption of sin, there's only one answer to that problem. And Solomon, if we back up to chapter 3, begins to point us in this direction. In verse 17, Solomon writes, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. You see, Solomon is confident that God alone is the righteous judge. So how does Jesus remove our sin? How does what is unholy become holy? How does one who is unrighteous become righteous? How does an oppressor rightly seek justice? How is the curse of sin reversed so that God's justice might reign. The Bible gives us a progressive picture of how this is accomplished. We first see it in Genesis 3.21, shortly after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God sacrifices the first animals in order to cover their nakedness. It wasn't sufficient that Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with leaves. An animal had to give its life in order that Adam and Eve's sin might be covered. In Israel's history, for hundreds of years, priests would offer animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. And the author of the book of Hebrews summarizes the entire Old Testament system in this way. Hebrews 9.22, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all of this, for hundreds of years, was to prepare God's people for his promised Messiah to come, 
who, as John the Baptist rightly identifies in John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to these beautiful words from the Apostle Paul regarding Jesus in Romans 3, 22 through 24. He writes, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is how guilty sinners stand forgiven. By faith in Jesus' sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection that defeats sin, death, and gives us new life. You see, brothers and sisters, only Christians saved by God's grace can truly understand God's justice. You see, God sent His beloved Son to live and die so that you and I would sin no longer. Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The plainest example of God's justice, wrath, and vengeance against sin was on the cross of Calvary. If God would crush His Son in order to make a sinner righteous and give the gift of heaven, we can trust God to right the wrongs that we see and encounter here on earth. God in His time and place will right all wrongs. And sometimes that is executed in the here and now, but we know and with hope and faith, with confidence, that it will ultimately take place in eternity. But now justified, with our hope fixed in eternity, we are not passive observers of injustice, nor do we offer simplistic platitudes. Sanctification is our daily cooperation with the Holy Spirit to live out moment by moment what God says that we already are, and that is righteous. As God's work in us begins to eliminate the residue of sin, the image of God begins to shine more clearly in our lives, and the gospel compels us to be people who reflect the character and grace of our God. And as the psalmist writes in Psalm 89:14, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so how how do we, how do you and I respond to Solomon's observations and maybe even our own observations about life in this fallen world? Well, Solomon tells us in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, 
for that is his lot. He, who can bring him to see what will be after him? You see, Solomon ultimately says that we need to understand our biblical role that we play and learn to be content there. So what is our biblical role reflecting the character of God? Well, Solomon's words are similar to what we famously read from Micah in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As image bearers of a just God, what is our role? It helps us, I think, to look back at Christians in the history that have gone before us to say, how have they represented a just God to a corrupt and dying world? During the Roman Empire, it was Christians who rescued and adopted unwanted babies who had been tossed like garbage into human dumps simply because they were female. It was Christians who have built hospitals and orphanages all around the world to serve the suffering more than any other movement in history. Christians have, ins have inspired higher literacy rates around the world, even introducing written languages into cultures that had none. Christians directly inspired universities to form and help spark the scientific revolution under the conviction that science exists to glorify God and to benefit the human race. Christians led movements to abolish slavery in America, the United Kingdom, India, the Middle East, and South Africa. Christians continue to be active in our age, not just simply in, in, in years past. A 2018 study found that Christians in America outpace all other groups in providing food to the poor, donating clothing and furniture to the poor, giving personal time to serve the poor in their communities, and serving the needs of others internationally. Not long ago, a non-religious research group studied the impact of 12 churches around the city of Philadelphia with a metric to understand the economic effect that those congregations had on the surrounding communities. Can you guess what their volunteer hours contributed to economically? Think about that. Their studies showed that each year these churches contributed through their volunteer efforts more than $50 million in economic impact in their community. $50 million. That is a mighty cold cup of water in the name of Jesus Christ. Christian communities today outpace other groups in adoption, foster parenting, fighting human trafficking, and community development. As we pray and seek the Lord to understand what is our role in representing our just God as his image bearer, I find this outline by John Perkins to be very helpful. He says, number one, start with God. 
If we don't start with God, then whatever we are seeking isn't justice. Number two, he says, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, and poor, are family. If we give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that would tear down that unity, then we are not bringing God's justice. We just... We now know that Matt Clark knows the fruit of the spirits perfectly now. Praise God. He went from a 75 to 100%. Chris, you're a brilliant teacher. That was all on you, my friend. Right? If we're not exhibiting the fruits of the spirit as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we seek each other's good, then it's not justice we're accomplishing. It's not justice we're working for. Number three, he says, preach the gospel. Jesus' sinless life, sacrificial death for sinners, and triumphant resurrection is good news for everyone. And if we replace the gospel with this or that man-made political agenda, then we are not doing biblical justice. Number four, he says, teach truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. The ultimate standard for truth is not our feelings, our experience, or popular opinion. God's Word is the standard for truth. And if we're trying harder to align ourselves with rising opinions of the day more than we are the Bible, then what we are doing is not going to be true biblical justice. So friends, where will we as a church family continue to seek justice? By God's grace, we've been able over the past several years to enter into some of these places in our own community, to work to see justice reign at the Pregnancy Resource Center. Through SKIM and Camp Boost as we, as we involve ourselves in children's literacy programs as we've been making donations to Second Harvest Food Bank and the Interfaith Hospitality Network to provide meals for homeless during the pandemic. I know many of you are seeking to do justice personally with your own funds, time, and energy, and effort. We want to continue these good works and do even more for the sole purpose of spreading the message of the kingdom of God. Justice must begin with God and end with His glory. That is what we are called to reflect. That is what we are called to do. And any effort that's anything less than that will fall short. Justice must begin with God and end with His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this Word. Lord, as we have seen, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book. It is a book that reveals the brokenness of our world. It reveals the brokenness that is inside of us. But Lord, help us to see, help us to not forget 
that you have an answer for that brokenness. Because you, in your loving kindness, have chosen to crush your son on the cross. And so, Father, as image bearers of you, may you enable us to better reflect your character to a world that is dying around us. God, enable us to spread a light of the gospel by loving others well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.